Today we have Devin Elder on the show. Do you want to protect your assets from inflation? Inflation is a silent killer. It can slowly erode the value of your money, your investments, and your savings without you even realizing it's happening. That's why it's so important to have a plan in place to protect yourself from inflation risk. Devin believes the inflation risk in the economy provides valuable benefits to asset owners. He and his team have purchased over 5,000 multifamily units over the years, and he's seen it all. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn, and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Devin Elder before we start the show. Devin was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. He's a big believer in San Antonio, highlighting that it's the seventh largest metro in the U.S. It has a great infrastructure. It's affordable. And it has a diverse job base. Devin is a complete entrepreneur at heart, and he loves to help others in the business. Now... Onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We have Devin Elder. Devin, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So, just a little bit on how I know Devin. Um, this is actually the first time that we're talking, but I know of Devin because of, through social media, he runs in the multifamily space. He's been in the space for a long time. And I'm very interested to get his take on, one, what he's done in the past and also what his outlook is for the future. So uh, with that, first question I typically ask is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yeah, so we the metric we look at, and there's kind of different ways to cut it up, right? But we look at uh, multifamily units purchased. And so today that number is a little over 5,000. Uh, that we've that we've acquired now a lot of that we've gone full cycle on and we don't have in the portfolio anymore um, we are currently managing about 3,000 doors in San Antonio Texas but there's always a little bit of a caveat with these right a couple of those are um, third-party clients that we manage for we've we're vertically gotcha. integrated we own the management company but then it gets more complicated I'm also a key principal on those deals I'm also an investor in those deals so you know, there's kind of, there's, there's ways to look at it. If you just look at the um, properties that we currently manage that DJE, my company is the sole sponsor on, um, we're at um, a little over 2000 doors right now, currently. So there's kind of different ways to answer that, that question. And then LP equity, I'm LP investor in, oh gosh, I'd have to, I'd have to go pull up some reports to get you that number. It's a lot. <laughs> right. You you're, you just watch the K-1s come in at the end of the year, right? Right. Yep. Herding cats. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, 
Um, you are in the San Antonio market. So um, one, if you can kind of just share with the listeners a little bit on your background, how you got into this space, and then you've been playing in San Antonio. I've seen people, um, you know, kind of build out and then jump into other markets, but it sounds like you've really focused in on that one market. So kind of talk about that. Yeah, sure. So a um, little bit about my background. I had, I think, would would be considered a college, got a four-year degree, and then worked for um, a couple of large employers here in, in town. And then at some point, I just got a little bit disillusioned with my options. And I have always been uh, kind of impatient. And I I'm also um, always experimenting with things and always trying to improve things. And I just felt like my uh, efforts at my companies that I was working at were, were not, um, you know, were not directly contributing to my kind of success. And so at the end of the day, I'm an entrepreneur at heart and I um, needed to do that. So that's what led me into multifamily and into real estate was finding or trying to find a vehicle, an investment vehicle um, that would allow me to, to get out of my W-2. So I looked at a lot of different options and um, explored that for a while, while I was in my, while I was in my corporate career. And then um, eventually found real estate. I think if you, you know, if you search around long enough for passive income or retiring early or building wealth, all roads kind of lead back to real estate. I mean, you've, you've seen it, but it seems like folks have um, either built their wealth through real estate or built their wealth somewhere else and end up putting it in real estate. And so, you know, whether right. you're a professional athlete or, you know, entrepreneur and in, in a tech entrepreneur or whatever, it's like you end up with some sizable allocation of your portfolio in real estate in one way, shape or form. So I started doing that. You know, I was, I was working for a medical device company here in San Antonio, full-time job, married with kids. And I started uh, buying houses with hard money loans and uh, renovating them and refinancing out all my capital. And that seemed to be a, a, a really cool model that, uh, that I could repeat. So first year I did a house, next year I did 10 houses. And then my goal was to build enough cash flow off these rental houses to replace my income, at which point I would allow myself to quit my day job. So it took me about two and a half years of really burning the candle at both ends, working the day job, had a young family, building my real estate portfolio. And in 2015, I was able to step out of the day job on the, the, the thesis that if I had all my time and energy to commit to my business, that things could really take off, at least in theory. And uh, that's absolutely what happened. So coinciding with me leaving my job was also moving from the single family realm into the multifamily realm. And so the first multifamily I bought was a, a six unit with no partners and ran that myself, um, you know, literally signing leases on Sunday on the back of the car <laughs> That's south side of San Antonio. And then uh, a 75 unit with some partners and then 130 unit where I was the primary sponsor. And then it really just kind of got fast from there. And I kind of got, got the lay of the land and, you know, we're talking mid 2022 right now. The last deal we closed was a uh, 600 unit portfolio north of $60 million uh, purchase. So that's kind of how it started and how it's going. Well, I mean, you said a lot there, um, you know, impatient, you were disillusioned, you're entrepreneur at heart. Um, 
you know, for the listener's benefit, I think there's a lot of listeners that, you know, they're in that same boat. They're in corporate America. They know they want to do something different, right? But they, they don't know how to get there. And sometimes when they talk to people like you that, you know, have thousands of units, they can't really see the path, but you started with one house, right? Right. Yep. I mean, it, every multifamily investor, every investor that owns thousands of units started with one unit, one property, one investment property. And so look, we all started at zero. And so you got to get out there and actually take a chance. Um, and then you probably, when you, when you first started doing the single family homes, you probably didn't see yourself all of a sudden, Hey, I'm one day I'm going to buy a 600 unit portfolio. Yeah, it's very sequential. It really is one foot in front of the other. And it just enough steps have stacked up. And I feel like with every project, you learn a little bit. A lot of it in the early years is learning what I didn't want. I felt like everything I did was a mistake. And I almost feel like I made all the mistakes. And all that's left is to do the right thing now. And it feels... It feels today like uh, the Midas touch, right? Like everything turns to gold, but that's only because um, there was kind of so much experimentation and failure, I think, starting out and really just taking it step by step. And then a huge thing for me was just finding um, role models, you know, that I I didn't grow up with any money or any role model around, uh, around building this kind of, portfolio or business. Um, and it was critical for me that, that I found those people and got to be friends with people that had, let's say a thousand unit portfolio and even have guys like that, you know, give me some grief over dinner or whatever. Like, Hey man, what are you, what are you messing around with these houses for? You need to go buy a hundred unit apartment complex. And when somebody I really looked up to and respected got after me like that, I just thought I, I have to do this, you know? And so I just can't, overestimate the importance of your peer group. It, you know, if I were to look at one factor over the all these years being an entrepreneur that's helped, it's peer group. I mean, uh, I'm a part of several peer groups that um, there's guys and gals doing big things that, that push me. You know, there's that old saying, you want to be the dumbest guy in the room. And I think you really, if you want to grow, you need to, you need to challenge yourself and be around people. And really, I, you know, it's, it's almost like osmosis. I mean, we just are social animals and we are just going to mimic our peer group, whether it's the way we dress, the belief systems we have, we just mimic our peer group. And unfortunately, most people have a default peer group. They have their family, which they didn't pick, uh, or they have their work environment, which maybe they don't really have control over that either. And that might be it. And so you've really got to go out of your way, in my opinion, if you want to change things to get around a peer group that is doing uh, things that you aspire to do. And that, that was instrumental for me and still is today. That, that's huge. Um, well, how do you do that? So you said you're involved with, you know, multiple peer groups. Are you in different mastermind groups, going to conferences, meetup groups? Like how, how are you surrounding yourself with these types of people? Yeah, it's evolved over the years. Um, early on, it was going to a lot of multifamily conferences, uh, starting a podcast, um, absolutely paying to be a part of master multifamily mastermind groups. That was really instrumental for me early on. These days, I don't, <laughs> just to be frank, I don't really go to a lot of multifamily 
conferences or masterminds because my company's built, my team's running. Frankly, this is what we do every day. So for me to go spend a weekend at a conference talking about it, it's like, okay, that's I've had enough hours in the week talking about multifamily because we're over here running this portfolio. So I right. now today, and it's that's different from when I started, but sure. today my growth around multifamily comes from just running a, a, the company. A uh, but I am a yeah, I am a part of a couple other CEO mentor groups, um, things like that, entrepreneur mentor groups that maybe are not multifamily specific, but where I can get around people that are doing big things and be inspired by them and also be, um, you know, just have that camaraderie. It's, I just think it's incredibly important as an entrepreneur that you not rely on your spouse to be your, your business confidant. I think your spouse can be Maybe maybe your spouse is your business partner in some cases. For me, that's not the case. Um, so to not to not expect my spouse to understand everything about the business and and be that sole kind of um, person to rely on, and then your employees can't be that either, right? And your investors can't be that either. And so really, you're sitting out there all alone with these massive decisions and this massive burden on your shoulders. It's that's just no way to exist. And so you you're plugging in with other. CEOs, other business leaders, I think just from a social aspect is absolutely critical because you, you know the you're wearing a different hat when you're around your team or when you're at home being dad or being husband than you are running your company. And I think it's vital to just be networked with other people where you can be honest about your challenges in a way that you can't be in other, you know, Look, CEO or, or entrepreneur, you got to put on a brave face for everybody. Sure. And, uh, and that's fine. That's, that's how it goes. But I think that, that uh, peer group of other people that are in your um, same situation in their respective companies is huge. Yeah. And I think that, so I go, I go to a lot of multifamily conferences, um, but I also go to a lot of entrepreneurial type uh, conferences. And, and I, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're around the multifamily crowd, you're hearing a lot of the same kind of things over and over again. And when you right. get around other people in different industries, you may hear something that like, you're like, I could apply that to my business. And it's yes. different than what you've heard. Right. Um, or somebody is ahead of you and is challenging you to, to push yourself a little further. So um, I think that's, that's very cool. And I, and I like the progression, you know, and I, I would say to listeners, that's probably a pretty natural progression is that, look, in the beginning, you want to soak up as much as you can in terms of how to get involved and how to be successful in, in the multifamily investing space, if that's what you want. And then after that, you know, exposing yourself to other people that, you know, have succeeded in a, in a bigger way to kind of challenge you is, is a great dynamic to have. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always another level, you know, whether that's uh, looking at philanthropy, whether that's looking at, you know, team building or succession plans or getting into multiple markets. I mean, there's no, there's no getting somewhere and then just stopping unless that's what you want. There's always another level to explore. Right. And one thing you said before about you've gone through so many different things that you kind of, You've seen that, like, I heard this from other people. It's, it's kind of like, it's another one of those, you know? So, you know, once you've been doing it for long enough, and I don't think you mentioned it, but I saw it on your website. Like you started investing back, what, 2012? Yeah, that was my first deal. 
first little I mean, house. 2012. So, yep. I mean, you've been doing this for 10 years, you know, between, yep. and, and a lot of people have been getting into the space in the last year, two, three, four, five years. I'm, I'm only in the space for four years and, right. you know, you've seen a lot. So if you've seen it, you could say it's another one of those. This is how we handle that situation. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And the first time you see those, it takes a lot of bandwidth, mental bandwidth and resources and maybe capital to deal with it. But after you've seen it a few times, these, uh, these challenges start to kind of look similar and you have a, a, almost a sixth sense about how to, how to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk about the San Antonio market, um, you know, Texas and then San Antonio. Yeah, so I was born and raised in San Antonio. It's always been a little bit of a sleepier town next to the bigger Texas markets like Dallas, Houston, and then Austin has just been on fire. always a, a unique market, been really on fire the last few years. Um, I started investing in 2015 in San Antonio multifamily, you know, when you're trying to buy stuff for 60K a door, 70K a door, bought a deal for 46K a door. And, but what I've always liked about San Antonio is it's Texas. It's a business-friendly state. San Antonio's big. It's, I think it's like the seventh largest metro in the country or something along those lines, um, which a lot of people probably don't, don't realize. Uh, it's got a great infrastructure system, so traffic is fantastic for a city this size. Um, and then you've got a diverse job base, so we're not reliant wholly on energy. Uh, we've got a, a little tech burgeoning tech sector. We've got medical is a big employer here. We've got military, military city USA is a moniker for San Antonio. Um, and it's affordable. And, and even though we've seen a run up in prices and everything globally since 2020, um, San Antonio still is affordable. So you've got a lot of migration, a lot of folks moving here, especially since 2020, that, that really kind of changed things. And then you've got a downtown that's really being revitalized. Uh, Frost built a new, Frost Bank built a new tower downtown a couple of years ago. It was the first kind of addition to the San Antonio skyline. There's another 350 units of multifamily that's going up right now downtown San Antonio. Some new hotels going up. Um, An area just north of downtown called the Pearl that was a billionaire developer's kind of what we call a gift to the city. He really kind of went first spent a tremendous amount of money doing this incredible development that has just absolutely skyrocketed real estate values around the area. And then now that, of course, if, if, if smaller developers can get the comps on the hotel rates, on the rental rates, well, then that's going to spur a lot of development. So it's spurred a, a ton of economic activity downtown San Antonio. We actually are moving our corporate office downtown San Antonio. I'm really excited about that. Awesome. To be kind of in the middle, middle of that, uh, even though we don't really like, you know, invest in projects downtown necessarily. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the high level on San Antonio. It's a great place to have a family. It's not, you know, your, your average age, a little older than say a college town or party town like Austin, but, um, that's, that's fine. Your median income is going to be lower than, than it is in Dallas or, or in Austin. But for, for our purposes, renting 1980s apartment communities, um, at a dollar twenty-five a square foot, that's perfect. There's a lot of there's a <laughs> right, lot of, exactly. Hey, let me ask you this because you've been doing this for a long time. When I got involved four four years ago, I ran into some people that said what you said. They they were buying, you know, at forty 
50 a door. Yep. And they're like, I'm out. This was back in like 2018. And they're like, I'm out of the market. I'm, this is, you know, and I think I bought it like 80 a door. And now things are like 150 a door in the Dallas market. Um, so, you know, one, you know, why did you stay through as prices kept going up? And then two, you know, what's your take now at these levels? Are you still buying? Great questions. The problem is we're denominating in U.S. dollars, which everybody wants to be fixed, and it's absolutely not fixed, right? The, do- the value of the dollars are eroding like crazy. So we all denominate everything in dollars, and we don't even think twice about it because it's the, it's the global reserve currency. It's, it's King Kong. But the, the – so – if when we denominate in dollars and you say, wow, you know, used to be 40K a door, now it's 100K a door, that's crazy. Well, the purchasing power of that dollar has eroded massively in that time. So if we had a denominator that was constant, it would be easy to compare prices across time. We do not have a denominator that's constant. So that, you know, it's just not, you can't compare apples to apples and say 40K a door versus 100K a door because look at the cost of gas, look at the cost of, college, the cost of going to Disney World, the cost of rents, the cost of everything has uh, is, is gone up because the purchasing power of the dollars eroded. Now, so that's kind of how I address that just dollar per door conversation. All we're looking for is an investor IRR. That's all I care about. You know, at the end of the day, my company that's got 70 employees and tens of millions of dollars of investor capital deployed is looking for one metric. And it's, it's beautifully simple. We're looking to beat our uh, our average annualized return projection. And we're looking for some cash flow along the way, but at the end of the day, so if we can do that because rents are higher, because we've got a debt structure that works, because we've got a, a value-add plan to spend some money and make some improvements, that, that is all in service. All my whole portfolio of companies is in service of uh, exceeding our investor average annualized return projection. So if the apartment was $1 million per door, and it, we could get it to underwrite and feel comfortable that we could get a 15 to 20% annualized return for investors, we'd, we'd buy at a million dollars a door. Um, and so that's, that's always going to be the case. The thesis on multifamily has always been for us and many others that uh, this is a fundamental need, that we're massively under, undersupplied on housing, and that the meaty part of the bell curve of the population that needs an affordable, clean place to live that's not you know, uh, crime infested, dirt cheap or whatever, but it's also not $3,000 a month. You're just going to have that contingent of the population forever, as long as you're in an area that's, uh, that's seeing population growth. So, you know, the, the dollars are going to be what it's going to be. We're going to plug it into our underwriting, make some assumptions on what we think we can do with the property. And it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people, Again, because we're denominating in dollars, that is not a, it's not a constant. The purchasing power of the dollar is not a constant. It's, it's very easy to get wrapped up and say, well, I can't pay 125 a door because I used to pay 80 a door and right. I'm just not going to do it. Well, it's, those days are gone forever. And, and we live in a new reality where the dollar uh, means something different. And at the end of the day, you know, we're looking for investor return. Also, talking about inflation, you know, we want to lock in the debt in, in today's dollars because inflation benefits asset owners. It's really kind of, um, 
sad, I think, for the whole world that the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But the reason the rich get richer is because they own assets. And you right. know what we saw with, with 2020 and this avalanche of trillions of dollars coming on into the system here is that asset prices absolutely went crazy. So people that own assets saw their balance sheets explode. This is the rich getting richer. And they're doing that because they're using leverage, they're getting loans on the property, and they're seeing asset prices appreciate. And so um, I don't like that that's the game, but I didn't make the game. I set out to win the game for my family and win the game for our investors. And so that's the game we're playing. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, some of the things that, that people, you know, me including, um, before I got involved in the space, you know, may think like, okay, I bought 40 a door and now it's 80 or 150 a door. But in that time period, like you said, rents have gone up, incomes have gone up. The people that owned the properties in the past put money into the property to make it, to improve it, whether that be, you know, painting the exterior or renovating the interiors. Um, so the, the property has improved over time. Um, so all those are, are factors. And, you know, you're, you're frankly the first person that talked about, you know, the purchasing power of the dollar going down over time, which is, you know, a critical component as well. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the memes out there that say uh, these new $1 bills are awesome. And it's a $10 bill, right? I mean, it's just, uh, there's, there's no question that the, the purchasing power is being eroded. And that's not new. It's been being eroded for decades since right. we, you know. And to your point on assets, I mean, my, my kids are college-age kids and my, my wife, you know, they'll say, I can't believe these gas prices. And I don't like paying the gas prices either, but I tell them, I'm glad we own ExxonMobil, you know. Right. So, you know, that's an asset that's appreciating at the time, same time I'm paying higher prices at the pump. But then there's right. other people that are just paying higher prices. Yeah, you've got to own something. If you don't own something, you're not seeing any of the appreciation. You're only seeing higher prices. And that's the situation most people are in. Um, and it's tough. Same thing with taxes. You know, the, the, the middle class is paying all the taxes. The people on the low side are not paying taxes. Rich people are not paying taxes because they figured out ways not to do it. Uh, and so you've got your, your hardworking six-figure uh, middle management guy paying all the taxes in America. And it just, again, I, you know, I don't necessarily like that system, but that's the system that we're set up in. And I think at some point you've got to make a decision to, to play the game to win if that's, if that's your, your aim. Right, exactly. I, I think that's a great point. Hey, today, and I don't know if you saw the news or not, but as we're recording this, the Fed increased rates by 75 basis points. So talk about how, you know, I was at an event last night and you know, I'm around a lot of different syndicators and there's a lot of grumbling going on about, you know, interest rates going up, um, in debt prices going up, uh, people getting floating rate loans and the caps are, you know, costs for the caps are getting crazy. Um, so loan proceeds are down. So talk about how that's impacting your business. Yeah. So, uh, right now the deals we've been offering on, we don't sit on the sidelines really uh, much. We're always looking for deals. Uh, we're professional investors. So 
you know, if you sit on the sidelines, you might be on the sidelines for, for two, three years. So we're always looking for opportunity. Loan proceeds are down. That makes it harder to pencil. You know, we have one metric we're looking for, and that's average annualized return to investors. Um, loan proceeds are down. Interest rates are up. That's that's hurting cash flow. So those are all definitely headwinds. Um, you know, we've lost deals recently that we just got to as high a number as we're comfortable on. And um, that was well below, you know, the, the ask price several months ago. And so pricing expectations have come down a lot. Um, we closed, we closed a big portfolio in Q1 of 2022 before the Fed really started all these hikes and the debt market's completely changed. So you're looking at lower leverage. And as a function of that, you're looking at lower offers, uh, you know, a deals where that might've had 12 offers over ask now have two offers, 10% below ask. So that's just the reality. And, you know, I, I say all the time, we, there's always headwinds, always tailwinds. So we've got a headwind of debt right now. Absolutely. I mean, debt is the biggest lever in a traditional syndication model where we're buying a $20 million apartment building, getting a bank loan and investor equity is the rest. Um, with that model, you got, you've got to hit certain investor returns. So, um, it's just flat out lowering offering prices because the debt has changed. Um, so lots of deals getting retraded, which is like, you know, unheard of in a normal kind of market condition. You do not want to be an operator that retrades a deal you have under contract. That's just, a, that's a big no, no. But if your debt numbers absolutely change overnight and they have, then, uh, then you've got to. So, Deals are falling out of contract. Deals are blowing up because debt terms are changing. Um, we've got to underwrite more cautious debt terms on the deals we're looking for. Um, but the the Fed had to do something, right? You've got an eight and a half percent CPI right. print. Inflation's visibly out of control. Um, been at zero for a long time. But I think you know if we zoom out a little bit, the sooner the Fed can raise rates and go through this market pain and you know, I haven't checked the Dow since this morning and don't know what it's doing, but um, stock market's down. Um, there's going to be pain. The Fed said as much. I think the sooner we get into that, the sooner they're able to cut rates again. They can't cut rates from zero, so they've got to get off of zero. And it's, it's I think, helpful to zoom out multiple decades and look at what the Fed's done. Uh, recessions are short-lived. Recessions are me measured in in months, not in, in years, most of the time. So if we're in 2022 and we're headed into a recession and we can't have a soft landing, like the fed was talk, talking about, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the monetary system that we're in where the federal reserve can print any amount of money. Again, I don't like that system, but I didn't make that system. So what that creates is a boom and bust cycle that's that's what we're living in. So the sooner um, we can get these rate hikes out of the way, the sooner the Fed can cut rates again. And historically, that's what they've done. I just don't know globally that we can sustain high rates for any you know multiple multi-year period of time. Could be wrong. That's all forward-looking stuff. But um, the Fed had to do something with the CPI print, and. Um, I think I think it's relatively we're going to be in this interest rate environment I think for a relatively short period of time until they're able to cut rates again. So um, in the meantime, if we're pursuing deals, you know you've got to factor in the cost of your rate cap. You've got to factor in your your leverage. You've got to factor in your rate. 
And the only other lever you have is price, is to lower your offer price. And at some point, buyers or uh, sellers in this market are just going to have to accept that. If they're in a position where they have to sell, they're just going to have to accept that. And we see that happening. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I th- This is a prediction from, from me. I don't know if you would think the same, but I mean, the syndication market has grown a lot in the last several years in terms of a lot of new syndicators out there. And I think that with, you know, a troubled situation where you have, you know, debt becoming more difficult, um, it could weed out some of the, you know, the new syndicators um, that they're just not able to get it to work or they, they got a deal done a year or two ago and, you know, they did three-year bridge money and, and now they're coming up on having to either refi or, and they're having trouble, you know, making it work. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the operations, uh, these deals are not easy to run. And so I think we've seen for a long time that that was okay because your valuations were just running away. And I mean, golly, we don't buy deals in Austin, but I was having lunch with a broker friend of mine. He's, this was a few months ago. And he's like, you know, five years ago, you, you, you could have just bought any, anything in Austin and had, you could have had negative NOI growth. Doesn't matter. Don't even just, just acquire it. Forget about everything else. And you would have looked like a rock star five years later. Absolute rock star with zero operational ability, uh, just purely on appreciation. So look, we've seen, seen a lot of that. Uh, The truth is these deals are hard to operate. They're, they're difficult to operate. You're operating, you know, on a cu- on a handful of acres where hundreds of families live and older buildings sometimes and there's just a lot of variables um, to to operating a property well. So I think yeah, I think operators that have a handle on it now are going to have an opportunity to shine. Um, and it's harder it's harder to get into deals right now today with the with the debt situations that we're in. So you just going to have to find a way to make it pencil or not, uh, not participate. But I, I also would say I've never felt like we bought an easy deal. Never. Right, I just, right. Every, you know, every it, deal at the moment seems like you're, you're stretching. Overpaying, you know, are we buying too high? How are we going to, you know, are, are CapEx budgets too high? Every single one of them taxes are too high. I mean, it just, that's just how it, Every single deal has ever felt this. None of these are a layup, at least in my in my opinion. No, and, and and that goes. It's consistent with, you know, what a lot of people have told me is that yeah, they were they were scared. You know, on their first deal, they were they, they're scared on their latest deal. But they yep. even though they're scared, they still are able to pull the trigger. And I think that's the differentiator between you know people that find a way to be successful and people that you know, gets caught up in that analysis paralysis and they just can't pull the trigger. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you should be scared buying these deals if you're taking on investor equity. Um, You should absolutely be scared. That's a very sacred duty. And so it's a fine line that we walk between actually getting a deal done. Because to be honest, you could put together a good looking deck and go raise money on anything. You could absolutely do that. Right. Um, 
but you don't want to be in a situation where you can't perform to your projections. You're not going to be in business long. So the the onus is on the operator really almost exclusively to find and pick good deals to put in front of investors because like I said, you know, you've never seen a bad offering memorandum. They all look amazing. Right. You know? Um, so you're never going to see an operator say, well, we may do okay on this deal, but it's a little shaky. Nobody's ever going to say that. Right, every exactly. every deck all- looks amazing. That um, looks amazing. So many, so many of the return profiles look look very similar to one another. And sure. um, yeah, so sure. It, you know, invest in one markets that you you know believe in, and and two with you know people that you know, like and trust for sure. Hey, you Absolutely. guys are you mentioned it earlier. You guys are vertically integrated, so that can mean a lot of different things. Um, so, how would you define you know the way your company is vertically integrated? So we used to not be, we used to basically be a private equity firm that raised capital and bought apartment deals and brought on third-party management companies to run the day-to-day operations. Then I had a really negative experience on two assets with a third-party management company. And I felt um, that I had no choice but to start my own management company. So I did that a number of years back and it's been, it's been great. You know, I think it's definitely a who, not how situation. So I found the right who to run the management company. Um, You know, started with him as the first employee and he's grown that company to, uh, you know, 65 people at this point that run our entire operation from leasing consultants and maintenance folks to accounting and um, HR and and all that stuff is, is now housed. So, you know, every um, everybody that works on one of our assets is employed by a DJE company. And so that just lets us execute faster, lets us have better control. Um, we're not just another client to a larger management company. And everybody's rowing in the same direction in terms of um, in terms of outcomes. We're really all focused on... So how long have you had that uh, internal property management company? Started it in um, <laughs> in March of 2020. Perfect oh, time to start oh, a business. Wow. Yeah. So um, started that. And, you know, it's been a little over a little over two years now, and it's just grown incredibly. And it's grown because you know we're already poised as buyers and operators, and so um, you know we've got to have somebody manage the property. So it's been our company, and we already had the acquisition side and the capital side, you know, really humming along. And right. so it was pretty easy to just plug in projects uh, that we were buying into our own team. And and so that's helped a lot from everything from underwriting deals to executing our capital improvement plans. Um, we have a couple of clients that are friends of ours, but that's it. We're not trying to, we're not trying to go out there and do marketing and get clients. Frankly, there's not a ton of uh, margin in property management right. and it's a lot of work. So it's all in service of investor returns. Um, you know, I mean, if the property management company actually is profitable and and makes good margin, which is fantastic, but uh, if it just broke even and it made our returns work, that would be enough for me. So sure. it's very much started, and, you know, have the control. The you control. know, that's also interesting because, you know, March 2020, when you had to make that decision, you're probably like, oh man, I don't know if I want to bring this in-house. 
and it's going to, this is a hassle and it's going to be painful and, and it's a learning lesson. And now you look at that as a blessing and absolutely, you know, I think that that's a lot of things in life, you know, the, the troubled times that you had, nobody, nobody wishes that they went through it, but when they look back, they're like, that formed my character. Oh, it's such a cliche and I wish there was a shortcut, but there isn't <laughs> all the, um, you know, all the pain has led to something. And, uh, you know, it's almost like Groundhog Day where he, Bill Murray spends the whole movie getting his butt kicked. And then at the end of it, he's got this great day because he built all these skills along the way. And it's kind of, kind of feels the same way where it's just like, you know, getting started uh, in this business, first couple of years, just getting my butt kicked uh, in every imaginable way. But that's that's what makes you strong, you know. Right. That's what makes you capable and makes you, sharpens your decision making ability, and that's the differentiator. Um, there's there's easier ways to live life than than being an entrepreneur and and pursuing these things. But, um, but you wouldn't I, change I, it. I certainly wouldn't have it any other way. Nope. Right. Exactly. So for the listeners' benefit, um, you know, you mentioned a who, not how, and. You know, there's a book. I'm not sure if you were referring to the book or not um, by Dan Sullivan. So if Love listeners, if you, you want to get a better understanding of what he means by that, who, not how, there, there is a, it's a really short little book, it, but, it, but it's great um, by Dan Sullivan on, you know, finding people that will, you know, whether it's hiring employees or outsourcing um, different tasks so that you can free yourself up to do bigger and better things. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you gotta, you know, there's gonna, there are million, a million hooks that are going to get attached to you as you're running through this entrepreneurial journey. And I think it's our job to constantly remove those hooks that are holding us back. And that, that might be a task or, or whatever. So I think growing my company has just been a process of, um, you know, firing myself from different roles. I've worn all the hats. I've done it all for short periods, long periods of time. And, um, you know, my goal for the last few years has really been for my companies to run completely without my involvement. That's just a goal. That's just a direction. It's, that's not, <laughs> right. the reality isn't there yet, but <laughs> yeah, the reality's not there. And I don't know that I, you know, it'll ever be there, but it certainly helped kind of clarify my thinking around, um, what the team looks like and how I cannot be a bottleneck on processes, which in turn helps the entire organization by having that framework. Absolutely. So talk about, you know, maybe think back on, on one multifamily deal and a big lesson that you may have learned. We did this one deal. It was my first larger deal of 75 units, total war zone. I had two other partners on it. And, um, War zone yeah. in what way? Um, we had a drive-by shooting there. Holy cow. That, like real war zone. Oh, yeah. We had homeless people sleeping in units. We had people would show up to the office completely naked in the middle of the day, strung out on drugs. We had drug dealers in there. We had, um, I mean, you name it. I did not find a dead body. But pretty much anything outside of that happened on that property. Holy cow. Um, so real, real war zone. So, um, you know, one, that was a lesson like, well, you know, there's not, 
Just because it's a bad property doesn't mean the returns are going to be there. All I care about is an average annualized return net to investors. If I can get that on a 1985 300-unit B-plus asset, I want that, you know. It's it a doesn't, lot easier. Yeah, it's all I care about is the return. So, you know, if I can get that on a clean, bigger, cleaner asset, I want to do it. So there was that. Um, also, you know, my partners kind of had this very DIY mentality, and my, uh, it was a husband and wife team, and they were there. The uh, husband of the team, anyway, would, would be there 10, 12 hours a day, and he would be mowing the grass. He would be in the units fixing stuff. And I just, you know, I got to see firsthand, like, I just don't think this is very leveraged. I don't think we, as the owners, should be doing this stuff. Um, but so I got to kind of see firsthand, like, this is not how I want to do it. I right. definitely want to bring people in rely on other people. And it took me a couple of years, I think, to kind of fine tune my team. I don't think you can just hand stuff off and have it expected to go perfect. It really took a few years of fine tuning that. But on that property, you know, that was kind of the lesson learned for me was um, it's, I don't want to spend all day at the apartment complex doing this stuff. That's, that's not, I'm supposed to be finding deals and, and growing this company. And that wasn't a good yeah, use. So, so I was going to ask why, you know, because some people listening may think like, well, they're saving money by doing that. So like, why yep. do you not want to be caught in the weeds and doing those tasks? Yeah, I mean, I think the, and this is not to bash on my old partners or whatever, but I think that was the last deal they did. And that was years ago, right? And I've gone on to do thousands of units since then. So say what you will about either of our approaches, let's just look at the results, of the approaches, right? Yeah, but well, I think it, you know, at least my answer, I don't know if it's the, the right answer, but is that if you pull yourself, let's just say mowing the lawn, right? So you're mowing the lawn, you know, every week. Um, yep. If you take your time to drive there and to mow the lawn and drive back and um, and you spent those whatever, three hours or whatever it, whatever it is, actually thinking about, another way to drive the business, you know, there's that one idea that you come up with could potentially save the, you know, or make the property that much more profitable. And if you're always in the weeds, you don't have time to, to do that thinking. hundred percent. Yeah. There's a real opportunity cost to that. There's an exercise I did a number of years ago that really helped clarify my thinking. And it was, let's determine, let's determine a, uh, an annual salary. Uh, let's determine an hours of we, uh, per week to work. So let's just say it's a million bucks a year and you want to work 20 hours a week, just as a thought exercise. So 20 hours a week times 50 weeks, that's a thousand hours. Uh, a million bucks divided by a thousand hours is a thousand bucks an hour. And so I wrote that on my whiteboard and I said, let's just have this as a target. And what that really helped me do, let's say, you know, want to work 20 hours a week, make a million bucks a year, was to say, was really helpful in eliminating things, you know, because every time I'd sit down and go, is this a thousand dollar an hour activity? Negotiating a multifamily deal, uh, that might be tens of thousands of dollars an hour. Um, talking to an investor that's going to write a million dollar check into a project, that might be tens of thousands of dollars an hour. Like those things are clearly... Um, and then I kind of discovered like playing golf with investors was potentially a thousand dollar an hour activity, which felt wrong. I enjoy playing golf, but when I look at it through the lens of dollar per hour, yeah, it checks the box. 
and there was and there was ninety five percent of the business activity that was not at a thousand dollars an hour, and that really helped me start to kind of divide the workload. And um, I think I struggled a lot too with just accepting that that was okay. I mean, I, I didn't grow up with money, and so um, I think it was Andrew Carnegie said the the one that does the work doesn't get wealthy, and you know that's. I've, I've seen that be the case that the person that architects it and puts it all together and is an owner reaps the rewards and they obviously take the risk too, but trying to architect from that dollar per hour and, and saying, you know, constantly checking yourself, is this, you know, is doing X, Y, Z activity thousand dollars an hour? I think uh, that's an awesome exercise. I mean, yeah. you know, everybody, else, everybody has their own dollar amount, but I think that's an awesome exercise. And to your point about the, you know, the worker versus the owner, I, I don't know if you read this book or not, but, but uh, the book about Nike, um, I forget what it's called, but um, in that book, they, st- they state that they hired like a designer to do the logo for Nike, that swoosh, which is probably yeah. what the, the most recognized logo, logo sim- symbol out there. And they paid somewhere between two and four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, sounds for right. that person to design it. They got right. that designer got paid one time. You know, let's just say it was four hundred bucks, four hundred dollars. And Nike has that swoosh symbol, like all over the world, recognized yep. to their company. I mean, that is the, you know, if that doesn't tell you the difference between the worker and the owner, um, not, you know, nothing will. Yep. Now that, you know, the challenge is that we, we need to live, we need paycheck to pay our bills and it's hard. I mean, it was hard for me two and a half years working my corporate job to get in a situation. It's incredibly hard. It's the hardest thing I've done as an adult was to, to work my way out of my corporate job. So, you know, making that transition and be in a position where you can take risks and be the owner is, uh, it's no joke. It's a different, it's a, it's a different approach. Well, talk about that. I mean, with that comes, cause look, somebody knows you now they're like, Oh, Devin's an overnight success. Right. But it's not right. You, you had to sacrifice to get there. And a hundred percent. I mean, there's, there's, there's no question that, you know, somebody gave me a book early on, I think it was by Darren Hardy called the entrepreneurial roller coaster. And I was telling him my plan as an older guy. And I was telling him my plans to, you know, build this company. And he's like, well, read this book. And, and, and the first thing it said was a quote from Elon Musk. He said, being an entrepreneur is like staring into the abyss and eating glass. And <laughs> I think that's eating glass. Yeah. I mean, uh, eating glass and staring at the abyss, just not the, not the rosiest picture. And I think in the beginning it can absolutely be that and look, a lot of entrepreneurs don't make it. This is there's there's risk here, and um, it's an incredible amount of it's just a different mentality. But the the rewards are are crazy for those that kind of make it through the gauntlet. And I think a lot of it is is life just testing you. And if you if you can get through that and pass the test, then the the rewards on the other side are are there to be had. And we see countless countless entrepreneurs that are that are testament to that. Um, but it definitely took a lot of perseverance, a lot of getting kicked in the teeth repeatedly and keep showing up and took getting, you know, it took, it took everything I had in terms of getting around the right people, 
every dollar of capital I'd ever made, um, you know, putting into this business, risking all of that, um, all for, for this dream of, you know, being an entrepreneur and having this freedom and several years of, of, uh, what I would say, you know, high fuel consumption takes a, it takes the rocket a tremendous amount of fuel to get out of the atmosphere. Once it gets out of the atmosphere, it doesn't take much, uh, fuel to, to, once you're out of the atmosphere, but getting out of the orbit, getting out of the earth's gravity is incredibly resource intensive. And that was a case for, for me, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with what you said. And I would tell listeners like, look, I, I'm still a huge believer that if you have a pit in your stomach that you want to try something, whether it be real estate or start your own business or something like you're not going to be satisfied until you take that chance. But on the same token, like Devin said, you got to feed your family. You got to do, so you have to plan to be able to do that. Right. You have to either, you know, be doing stuff at night and on the weekends, you have to sacrifice, you know, sacrifice watching Netflix, you know, sacrifice some of your, your weekend time to go after your goals because look, a year goes by, three years go by, five, 10, and all of a sudden you're like, man, why didn't I try? Right. Yeah, I think in the beginning, especially, it's a all-out war. Uh, Not forever, but you've got to plan for all-out war for a couple of years, I think. We got practice with that, with Dave Ramsey. We did Dave Ramsey. We paid off all our debt right after we got married in 2008. We went all-out war. I mean, literally eating beans and rice, sold my car, you know, sold everything. We went to war and paid off, um, it's funny, it's 110,000 in debt, which sounds hilarious now, but at the time that was tremendous. And I saw the power of going all in 100%, take no prisoners on a, on a concept, in this case, paying off credit card debt, student loan debt, card debt, stuff like that. And it worked, you know, in, in, in two years, we, we saw all this progress and I, I, it really, set the tone for me to go, okay, if I can get my family on board and we can go to war, all out war, I mean, be willing to sell the shirt off your back if it meant advancing the cause. You can, you make a lot of progress in a short period of time. And so that's what I did with my business. I, it was all out war, sold everything, put every resource I could possibly imagine into it, countless sleepless nights. Um, and that's what it took. And that's that, that compressed a lot of activity and a lot of things into a relatively short period of time. And now we're on the other side of that. It's like, I, you know, I live a life that I would absolutely never have dreamed of as a, as a kid. Right. Right. Well, good for you, man. Good for you. And you're making a lot of people wealthy. That's, I don't know that as a syndicator, look, I go to church and I, I think that that's a way of serving, you know, like, look, you're helping grow the wealth of all your investors. 100%. There's a guy I used to work for that's a a billionaire. And he said, you know, the best thing you can do for people is give them a job. And so we're employing a lot of people, good jobs, good company. And we're giving a lot of people, investors, uh, an awesome avenue that uh, they might not have had otherwise or been aware of. I love that aspect of it. That's that's huge. Hey, so what's the next big stretch goal? Like what do you got for the future? Yeah, so we want to do a thousand doors on the acquisition side in 2022. We're at 600 right now, so we got 400 doors to buy this year. Debt markets are, you know, a curveball that we're working with. So, um, you know, there's that. We um, 
we want to do $50 million of, of capital raised uh, for the company this year. We're at $35 million. We do some other stuff. We do some land stuff and some other types of projects that we put some investor capital into. So we've got some other avenues besides multifamily. And so those are those are the targets for the year that are, that are tracking pretty well. Uh, we'll see what they're going to be next year. And um, I think right now we're in a season, uh, we'll kind of switch to marathon mode instead of sprint mode. I mean, we've got the property management company up and running. I promoted um, the guy that started that management company with me. He's now COO of our company. It's an incredible opportunity for him and he's done a great job. So we're in the process, I think, as a company of saying, okay, you know, we want to raise X amount of capital and we want to do a thousand doors on the acquisition side this year. Um, you know, how can we continue to pursue those goals, but let people kind of mature and grow in their roles and get ready for their next advancements? And that, that is one of my favorite things is seeing people get promoted up through the ranks of the company. And that stuff takes time. I mean, they've got to kind of marinate in their roles. So we're definitely more in, um, in marathon mode where, you know, let's keep the company of the culture great. Great. Let's, you know, continue to promote from within and continue to foster that because all that leads to, you know, to good outcomes for us. So we'll probably try to buy a thousand doors next year too. That might mean getting to some other markets. I'm not a huge fan of setting like very tactical multi-year goals because I think ch things change. You got to react to the marketplace and, and be nimble. So I, I tend to set one year targets around capital raise and, and units acquired. Um, and so, you know, mid-year, probably Q3, late Q3, we'll start trying to put our goals together for 2023. But, you know, for, for me personally, I mean, I've, I really kind of achieved, uh, you know, incredible amount of, of dreams and, and financial freedom. And I think now it's more about letting, um, you know, coaching other operators to come up and, and do that, getting our employees promoted and, and then coming up, um, continue to deploy investor capital. I think, you know, my role, I feel like I, I, I've achieved my dreams. I want to just kind of continue to enjoy running these companies and growing these companies at a responsible rate. Um, I'm not, it's not all out war for me anymore, right? It was in the beginning to get this stuff off the ground, but now we're kind of a bigger established company and I just want to keep it growing and keep a, keep a good company culture. That's, that's where, that's where my head is at these days. Well, one congratulations. I mean, that's that's oh, awesome you. to to have achieved that. Um, two, like I tell people, you you know, even people that are beginning, they they can't see it, but you're a testament to it. It's it's a ripple effect. Like you were out to create something for your family, and now you're talking about adding a thousand doors when you don't necessarily even need to, right? But you're pouring into, you know, your your employees and helping them grow, and you're continuing to provide great returns to your investors, and so it becomes, you know, and I, I don't think people can see it at the beginning. Like when you were buying your first house, you probably couldn't see it, right? No, but couldn't but see it. But now all of a sudden yep. you're just like, oh, thousand dollars this year, thousand dollars next year, and the ripple effect that that has, you know hiring employees, building, you know, people's, um, you know, potential within the company, the returns that you provide all your investors and what they do with that money. I mean, it, it's huge. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, you can't, you can't do it at this level without uh, a big team and a lot of investors. And, 
they're all in it because there's something good in it for them. So yeah, I actually kind of had to get to the point with myself, like, why, why am I growing this company? Like, you know, it's not just to hand it off to my kids, let them have a big inheritance. Like that's the last, you know, goal in my mind. But now it's really, it's definitely bigger than me. It's like, well, if we, you know, everybody involved wants to do more deals, right? That means promotions, investors want to be in more deals. So it's not just about me anymore. It's like, well, I, when I look around, everyone's winning. Why wouldn't we want to do more? And then we could look at these assets like, man, we're pouring millions of dollars in these assets. They look a heck of a lot better than they did six months ago before we bought it. That's a win. So, you know, if we're doing, if we're setting it up where everybody involved wins, um, why wouldn't you want to do more of that? Right. Absolutely. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? You mentioned golf, yeah. I don't, but you mentioned it in, in the context yeah. of, of business. So I don't know if yeah. that's a hobby of yours. Uh, you know, hugely influenced by Dan Sullivan. We talked about him earlier. Um, he's got this concept of free days within strategic coach. Um, and so I, I started taking Fridays completely off about a year ago, which was an adjustment, but I'm able to do that. So, um, completely unplugged on, on Fridays. And that lets me do, uh, a couple of things I'm super passionate about. You know, we, um, we love going out on the ranch with the family. I've got two boys and a, and a girl, my, my wife and I do. And so, you know, we get out on the ranch and kind of rough it a little bit, but we, we love that. I love going hunting with my boys. Uh, I fly a helicopter, so we'll fly, you know, me and the boys will fly out to, to the ranch and, or down at the beach house and do that kind of stuff. And, and, um, just feel really blessed to be able to spend time with, uh, with my family while, you know, my kids are seven, 10 and 13. So we kind of have this finite period where before they go off to college or whatever they do when they leave the house, we're kind of in that sweet spot right there. And I just don't want to have any regrets, you know, around how I spend these years right now. So I spend, um, as much time as with my family as they, are comfortable with, <laughs> you As know, you are comfortable with. That's yeah. Great. I mean, you know, it's like at some point everybody needs to go do their own activities and sports and stuff, but a uh, lot of, a lot of time there. Um, but I'm a, I'm a constant learner too. Aviation has given me a lot to, to chew on the last couple of years. Um, you know, I'm working on getting a plane and, and getting all my ratings for that. And that's like, it's pretty dense stuff um, to, to, to get through as it, as it should be. And so that's my, my current challenge. And I just, I think that's how my brain operates. I've got to have a challenge. And I've realized in the last year that my business can't be my hobby all the time. I have people running the company and doing their role. It's not my job anymore to jump in and meddle with it. It's their job to, to run that and figure that out. So I've got to put my kind of overactive brain on other things. Aviation has been a really good one. Golf continues to be a challenge uh, for me. And then the, the ranch stuff, you know, going out and we've got animals and stuff that we, that we raise. And that's an awesome way to unplug. So uh, I had somebody comment on one of my Facebook posts. He said, do you have all the hobbies? I think I had a <laughs> of me flying a helicopter or something. It's like, well, look, man, we're all going to die. We know that, you know, and, and I feel like I just try to operate as if I, if I died and then I got to come back, how would I, how would I look at things if I was already dead, but then I got to come back and have all this stuff I have. Well, man, let's, let's freaking go for it. Let's go for, let's, let's go for the most we can. So I, I definitely have a lot of hobbies 
And being it, being intentional about stepping away from the business has let leaders step up, people step up, and, and that you know has only helped the company get stronger, um, letting people kind of mature in their roles. That's awesome. So if listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? DJETexas.com. So that's our company is DJE. So Delta, Juliet, Echo, and then Texas spelled out. We've got uh, podcasts there. We've got, uh, you know, team on the website and different things we've done. Uh, and you can definitely connect, connect with us there. That'd be the best spot. Fantastic. Well, Devin, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, if you're ever in the Dallas market and you want to play around a golf, um, let me know. I am not much of a hunter, um, but I, I'll go for a ride in the helicopter. <laughs> so, hey, there you go. There you go. So I was up at a conference a few, a few months ago. We took the helicopter up there. It's fun. So there'll be more for sure. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to it. Um, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. Definitely reach out to Evan, get to know him, uh, his team. He's got a big company. He's been doing it for a long time. Uh, look forward to connecting more with him. And uh, until next week, signing off. Thanks, Darren. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.